Azuth is the god of wizards and the arcane arts in the Faeronian pantheon. Azuth and his faith espouse the ethical and responsible practice and advancement of arcane magic for all. I'm Ben Dignan, and welcome once again to Religion in the Realms. Before getting into the actual episode, for this episode, I will be combining categories that I have noticed do not really need to be separate. The Avatar and Deity stat block category will now be combined with the Abilities category. In past episodes, I have discussed which deific category a given deity belongs to in the Personality category of the episode. I made the decision that those aspects would be better discussed in the Abilities category as well. Titles Azuth goes by the following titles. The High One, Patron of Mages, Patron of Wizards, Lord of Spells, Lord of Spellcraft, The First Magister, and The Hand of Sorcery. Azuth has no known aliases. Portfolio and Domains Azuth's portfolios are Wizards, Mages, and Arcane Spellcasters in general. Azu's suggested domains for 5th edition are Arcana and Knowledge. Appearance and Manifestations Azuth looks like a white-bearded, older human man adorned in an older style of clothing. Though Azuth does not seem physically affected by age like older humans. Despite the association of wizards and their hats, Azuth himself does not wear a hat. Azuth can shape-change into a 20-foot-tall pyramid. This is as much a part of his appearance as it is one of his abilities. In this pyramid form, Azuth does not have any facial features. Pulsing and sparkling lights run across the pyramid surface. Despite no apparent facial features, Azuth can perceive all around him, speak out loud, and unleash spells as his pyramid form glides around. I am assuming this pyramid form hovers and flies much like a beholder, but perhaps it simply glides around across the ground. Azu's personal weapon is an artifact he calls the Old Staff. This quarter staff is wooden and encased in iron inscribed with various markings and sigils. Topping the Old Staff are said to be one of two gemstones. In 3rd edition sources, the gemstone is a large blue sapphire. This sapphire is known as the Donjon of Facets, or if we go off its 2nd edition description, the old staff is topped by a rounded topaz gemstone and is called the Spirit Stone. Any spell inherent to the old staff functions as if cast by an 18th level wizard. I will not get into the minutiae of which spells are tied to the old staff, but 3rd edition's Faiths and Pantheons contains all the details. The old staff can function much like a rod of absorption, absorbing spells cast towards the wielder. Though the spell levels absorbed by the old staff can only be used as charges to cast spells tied to the old staff, not those spells known and prepared by the spellcaster themselves. Rather than become inert upon absorbing 50 spell levels, the old staff will explode out with something called a retributive strike upon absorbing more than the limit of 50 spell levels. I will describe the retributive property in a bit. 
The old staff provides a static plus 2 bonus to AC and functions as a plus 5 quarter staff. A single charge can be expended as a free action to cause double damage for a round. The old staff also will automatically reflect spells as spell turning had been cast. The Donjon of Facets, or the Prison Stone, is used as a prison for those who cast imprisonments with the old staff. But admittedly, the 2nd edition version of this ability is a bit different as those who have suffered more and more damage have a penalty to the save against being imprisoned in the gemstone. If needed, the old staff can be commanded to release all of its absorbed charges to deal damage in an area around the wielder. This is known as the Retributive Strike feature of the old staff. Though this runs the risk of either plane shifting the wielder half the time or destroying the wielder outright the other half of the time. This strike would effectively remove all powers with the inherent static enchantment that makes the old staff a plus five quarter staff. Second edition's Faiths and Avatars contains a couple unique abilities to the old staff as well. In particular, it can be commanded to shrink, enlarge, go invisible, fly about, plane shift away, or dimension door. On top of all that, Azuth can have it separate from himself and cast spells from the old staff as if Azuth was holding on to it. Azuth typically manifests through four forms. The first is a floating and glowing mouth surrounded by facial hair. The second is a glowing hand reminiscent of a symbol that is outlined in a silver aura. The third and most common manifestation of Azuth is an electric blue radiance. The fourth and final manifestation is just his disembodied dry voice echoing around his audience. This manifestation sometimes is used in tandem with the previous three manifestations. These manifestations are capable of casting spells, identifying spells and magic items without needing to see them fully utilized, and know the end result of all magic even before someone tries to cast said spells. Azuth is served by and makes use of the following creatures. Pure gray cats and dogs, which he both sees as lucky, gray owls, gray mice, golems, watch ghosts, devas, and the favored. The favored are either one of two types of creatures depending on what edition you refer to. In their third edition version, the favored are a distinct group of complex humanoid constructs born out of Azu's own mind to walk Faerun. The favored develop formulae to help channel the weave. The favored pass along important messages to the Azuthan faith and help to further the study of the arcane. They inherently have access to powerful magical abilities like flight and telekinesis. It is thought that the favored are formerly slain mortal spellcasters, which were then resurrected by Azuth, though this is not the case. I would suspect that any commonality in appearance between a favored's appearance and a form of spellcasters is purposely done by Azuth, or it is an unconscious manifestation in the favored that he creates. The second edition version of the favored are instead human archmages Azuth provides a second go at life so that these favored can both serve him and further arcane magic in general. I suspect that there was some sort of retcon between the favored's description in second edition and third edition for whatever reason. The second edition favored hold the same abilities that the third edition favored do. If Azuth is pleased with those he is visiting, he often will gift them with flowers of unusual colors, strange and magical fabric, or delicacies to eat. This is from 2nd edition, so when they say Azuth presents items to people directly, 
I take that to mean his avatar, unless they are visiting Azuth out in the Outer Plains. Abilities In the Deific Hierarchy of 1st Edition to 3rd Edition, Azuth is listed as a lesser deity. Except for 2nd Edition's Forgotten Realms Adventures and Planescape's Planes of Law, where Azuth is listed as a demi-power. I'm not sure why there is that discrepancy. I did not note any sort of reduction in his power when making notes on his history. Unless this happened as a result of the First Mister's death following the Time of Troubles. But even then, you would probably see that written out in a supplement like Face and Avatars, which isn't the case. Despite the breadth of what a lesser deity entails in 5th edition, Azuth would almost certainly still remain in this category. In a 1st edition sourcebook, Azuth is said to hold the power level of a 30th level magic user and a 20th level cleric. He can easily discern the abilities of any magic weapons wielded against him. Azuth can also nullify the powers of any magic items he touches. Azuth's avatar stat block can be found in 2nd edition's Faiths and Avatars, while a stat block for himself can be found in 3rd edition's Faiths and Pantheons. The following abilities tied to Azuth and his avatars come from 2nd edition and 3rd edition, so do keep that in mind if you plan on using such abilities in your 5th edition game. Azuth can choose to take a result of 10 on any check he makes. A 1 rolled on any attack roll or saving throw is treated as a normal roll, not as any sort of automatic failure. Azuth's divine senses reach out to a distance of 10 miles, which is approximately 16 kilometers. He can sense outwards from any of his worshippers, holy sites, objects, or any location where one of his titles of his name has been spoken in the last hour. Azuth can extend his senses out to five different locations at one time. He can block the divine senses of any deity of the same power level or lower for a maximum of 10 hours. Azuth has a portfolio sense that allows him to discern the discovery, writing, and or casting of any spell on Faerun, so long as this particular event affects 500 creatures at a minimum. Azuth can create any magic item that does not exceed 30,000 gold pieces in value. Azuth's avatar can access and cast any spell from any school of magic. These spells are also cast for maximum duration, damage, healing, and any other facets of the spells that are variable. The avatar can modify a spell's area of effect to meet his needs. The avatar can also cast two offensive spells and one defensive spell or miscellaneous spell in each round. Azuth's avatar are immune to 7th level magics from the spheres of thought, time, charm, enchantment, and illusion. Spells that hit the avatar only last for their minimum duration, damage, or any other variables usually determined by dice rolls. Personal History As a mortal spellcaster, Azu strived to gain as much power as possible. He delved into the study of deep arcane lore from twelve fallen empires to help him in this endeavor. Azuth would become the first Magister after he completed a series of challenges placed before him by the first Mistra. The Magister being a title granted by Mistra to recognize the current mortal creature on Faerun to best further the practice of the arcane. In particular, Azuth created several powerful magic items including one soon to serve him well in the future, 
As he looked to increase his power, he attempted to steal away some of Savras' divine power for himself. At this point in history, Savras was a lesser god of wizardry and the arcane in the southern regions of Faerun. Not as we know him as he holds his current specific portfolios over divination magics and fate alone. Azuth's theft failed, and Savras would engage Azuth in combat over several years. What did not help matters was the favoritism Mistress showed to both of them, along with possible romantic feelings shared by both Savras and Azuth for Mistra. At first, Savras would gain the advantage thanks to his foresight and preparation. Azuth would claw back thanks to his mastery with the arcane and proficient use of the weave. Later into this conflict, Azuth would bring to bear a powerful crafted magic scepter of his own creation. Azuth would imprison Savras within it for centuries in their climatic battle. Azuth and Savras would end up splitting a mountain in two and creating a deep lake when things were all said and done. There is debate and still confusion as to when these two great wizards did battle. If you read enough discussions on the matter in various source books, this battle either took place before, during, or after the Dawn Cataclysm. After working on these last three episodes, I land on saying it happened early on in the Dawn Cataclysm. As I will discuss soon, you will see Azuth, as a god, is acting in the 1st and 2nd century past the Dale Reckoning. If you recall from the last episode, Savras worshippers hold that Savras intentionally lost the battle between him and Azuth. That Savras saw in the future that he would eventually win out against Azuth, though he would have to lose first Azuth in these ancient days. Azuthans disagree with this stance. Instead, they hold that Azuth was held in preference by Mistra. The first Mistra was restrained herself and rather the god of mages who directly served her, was someone of a more emotional and passionate nature like Azuth was. Though I do have to note that Azuth seems even-tempered given how his personality is described. Perhaps in the past this was not the case, and perhaps this is why Azuth and Savras might actually be friends presently despite their former conflicts. Azuth would eventually gain godhood after Mistra herself raised him up to the Outer Plains, and with Savras imprisoned within the Scepter, Azuth's intentions were to make the scepter a symbol of his status as a god, but Azuth would eventually lose the scepter, or as it came to be called, the scepter of Savras. This artifact was teleported down to the surface of Faerun by the trap Savras. Since the staff's inherent abilities are influenced by the deity trapped within it, Savras caused the scepter to be warded against divination abilities and spells, regardless if a divine being was using such abilities. Thus, Azuth could not locate it after he lost it. It would not be returned to him for several centuries. Sometime after his ascension to godhood, Azuth was able to trap a group of powerful creatures known as the Shadavari. If you recall from the Shar episode, the Shadavari are ancient shadow creatures that preceded the creation of realm space. They also helped Shar to regain a lot of her power that she had lost in her battle with her twin sister Selune in the very first years of Realm Space. Together, the Shadavari and Shar conspired to bring Realm Space back into the infinite darkness that once existed before its creation. The thirteen Shadavari would prowl about Toril, causing destruction and chaos wherever they went. Azuth devised a way to attract the Shadavari to a pocket-sized crystal sphere prison, using powerful illusion magics to make the area around the sphere look like a realm of shadows, out on the edge of Realm Space. 
as the Shadavari came to investigate Azuth and imprisoned them in this crystal through the use of an artifact known as the Shadow Star, which was forged by Gond, the god of craft. The Shadow Star was then tossed into the cosmos by Azuth in the hopes that no one else became able to free the Shadavari. Despite Azuth's best efforts, the Shadow Star would crash down to the surface of Toril in 34 Dale Reckoning. This sets off a series of events that result in the story that transpires in the Curse of the Shadow Mage novel. Eventually, in 1364 Dale Reckoning, three of the Shadavari would be released from their imprisonment, though they would be destroyed from the actions of a group of heroes. In 136 Dale Reckoning, the second Magister, Shornthal Iminster, was named. In 147 Dale Reckoning, the Azuthan faith broke off to form its own separate faith from Mistra. This hints that Azuth had been a deity for some time at least before it was agreed that the Azuthan faith should be its own distinct faith. In 760 Dale Reckoning, Azuth destroyed a powerful enchantress and necromancer named Tashara of the Seven Skulls. Tashara is really only covered in Dragon Magazine issue 290, but you will find mention of her in 2nd edition's The Lands of Intrigue and 3rd edition's Grand History of the Realms. Tashara was an evil and manipulative female wizard who slowly but surely stole and killed from many mages. She herself was quite adept with magic and began to develop and create her own magics. So alluring was she that she was able to dupe seven different archmages into first taking her on as a false apprentice, and eventually entangled themselves with her romantically. These seven archmages she convinced into pursuing a specific type of lesser lichdom, which would then allow Tashara to control them once they became undead. So it was that she came to be accompanied and protected by seven of these lesser liches, each in the form of a floating skull with a pair of skeletal hands. This was until Tashara decided to wrest some more magical items and knowledge for herself from an Azuthan temple. There, the local high priest called upon Azuth, and the high one answered. Every spell hurled at what was likely Azuth's avatar passed harmlessly by, and Tashara was pulled in towards the patron of wizards. There, Tashara crumbled into dust, and one of the seven lesser lodges at her beck and call burst apart. The remaining six then scattered across the continent with the surge of magic. The staff of Savers would be turned over to Azuth before the time troubles by one of Mistra's seven sisters, Silune Silverhand. Following the death of the first Mistra, and the ascension of the second Mistra after the time of troubles in 1358 Dale Reckoning, Azuth found himself as an advisor. The second Mistra struggled with her responsibility in maintaining a neutral stance in governing the magic for all creatures down on Faerun. Thus, Azuth found himself counseling her on this matter. Reflecting upon Savras' imprisonment, Azuth felt guilty and released Savras following the Time of Troubles as well, though he did make Savras swear to recognize him as his superior. Things were purely professional between these two for some time, but they moved towards an amicable relationship. In seeking protection from Talos, Valsharun would seek out the gods of magic in 1370 Dale Reckoning. Valsharun would give his allegiance to Azuth directly, though Azuth remained always suspicious of Valsharun's true intentions. Azuth maintained this alliance to allow Mistra to better keep Talos in check. Talos desires the wild magic portfolio that Mistra holds.
1385 Tale Reckoning, Sirk was aided by Shar as he made his way into Mistress Plain of Dwemer Hart and murdered her. Mistress' death caused the plane to become undone, as Savras was destroyed outright. Valsharun and Azuth would be shot out across the Astral Sea. Azuth was hurled across the multiverse. He eventually fell down through to the Nine Hells, where he met with Asmodeus, Lord of the Nine Hells. There, Asmodeus killed Azuth and absorbed him. This enabled Asmodeus to reach godhood. Though Asmodeus did not fully kill Azuth, Instead, the two became fused in a sense. The following information comes from the Brimstone Angels series of novels, which are books I do not have access to, save one. But the Forgotten Realms wiki does give us some citations from those novels, so I will put my trust in the information the wiki provides. My interpretation of what the wiki says is that Amodius's physical body remained the same while these two gods were fused but Asmodeus' mind was affected by the presence of Azuth, dormant as he was, residing within. This caused Asmodeus to behave strangely at times whenever the dormant Azuth's mind would wake up in spurs. Those serving under Asmodeus thought their superior had become mentally unstable. By 1486 Dale Reckoning, Azuth had woken up and was regaining his power within Asmodeus, Still in prison, Azuth was still able to name and choose a war wizard of Cormir by the name of Ilstan Nyaril as his chosen. The conflict that now existed within the body of Asmodeus threatened the very hierarchy of the Nine Hells. Ilstan would meet with Asmodeus' chosen, Farida, on the Prime Material. They enacted a plan to separate their respective patron deities from one another. Using an untheric god as an intermediary, Asmodeus was provided with a divine spark from another untheric deity. Then in a ritual, Ilstan sacrificed his life in order to allow Azuth to rise up as a separate god once more. Personality Azuth is a lawful neutral god. He is deeply concerned with the practice, advancement, and preservation of the arcane arts. Azu's dry and dedicated personality rubs some deities the wrong way. They see him as ornery and are unable to see his dry humor and wit. It does not help that Azu speaks almost entirely in monotone, so it may be easy to misjudge when he is being serious or jesting and playful. While Azu would rather spells be created and cast in a constructive manner, he can still appreciate those used for destruction, subterfuge, and vile acts. His stance on magic allows him to remain impartial on the spells themselves, ignoring those who cast them. Should Azuth be angered, the air around him crackles with arcane energy. This arcane energy looks to pass both through him and his old staff. Personal Realms In the Great Wheel cosmological model used in 1st edition, 2nd edition, and is the assumed model for 5th edition, Azuth resides on the split lawful neutral and lawful good outer plane of Arcadia. Specifically, his realm, which bears his namesake, is found on the second layer of Arcadia, known as Buxinus. Arcadia is a plane of ordered and planned bliss. Plants grow to a certain height and produce maximum yields. The rivers and streams here flow straight and, when needed, curve at perfect right angles. Animals are complacent and leave people alone so long as they are of a good or neutral alignment. The seasons have an exact number of days. 
There is a sharp change from day and night on Arcadia as well. Atop the highest bound peak in Arcadia is what I take to be a massive object of light and darkness. This orb of day and night is a perfect sphere that emits the needed light and darkness in a perfect day and night cycle. Roads and paths are numerous across Arcadia, and the locals get a bit leery and suspicious of those who step off the road into wild spaces, unless they are a known local who works in such places. What's worse is that the Arcadians have become that much more paranoid after the third layer of their plane went missing and became attached to Mechanus. The plane is patrolled dutifully by the Einhariar, who are celestial warriors. They are the resident petitioners of Arcadia. They look much like they did during their lives on the Prime Material, though with a healthier and more robust look to them. This makes any sort of mischief hard to conduct on the plane. What's more, restrictions have been put in place getting from the first layer to the second layer of Arcadia. The second layer of Buxinus itself is one of rolling hills, circular lakes, and growing orchards with interspersed plains in between. In order to travel from the first layer to the second of Buxinus, an individual needs to find the necessary border markers and walk through them from one layer to the next. The unfortunate thing is that given the strict nature of those who heavily guard these boundary markers, usually only natives of Arcadia are given easy access to travel. There are some lesser known paths that wind their ways through a mountain range that separate the two layers, but some of these paths are guarded by some unknown group of creatures said to be more powerful than even the Einhariar. Buxinus now serves as the marshalling ground for a sizable Einhariar force with the intention of retaking the missing third layer of Arcadia back from Mechanus. The realm of Azuth is small compared to most deities' realms. It is also hidden away. The entrance to this realm is hidden in between three trees on the side of a hill by powerful illusion magic. Though the illusion has been cast in such a way that wizards are able to see the entrance to Azuth clear as day. Within, the cavern walls give off an eerie glow. It is enough to give folks the ability to see pretty clearly, but still dark enough that there are several shadows around. At the bottom of the staircase, descending down from the realm's entrance, is a town that suddenly becomes visible. This town is known as Mage's Rest. The town contains all the various amenities any usual town would have. The lights and sounds of magic being cast can be perceived throughout the town, and it may give the casual visitor a sense of unease. However, this town falls under the protection and power of Azuth. The sense of order is immediately picked up on by any arcane practitioner. The magic cast by wizards works normally here, as if on the prime material, ignoring the rules and conditions of Arcadia. Though any magic used in an attempt to harm another will incur Azuth's punishment. The spell will still normally damage or affect their target, but Azuth will have an exact copy of that spell hit the caster, or cast a copy of that spell in an area effect to include the caster. Wizards can easily obtain citizenship in Mage's Rest, and several of them have their own houses and towers. As you can imagine, the town is also a place of deep arcane learning, with wizards of all walks of life sharing their studies and spells. Any wizard of any alignment is welcome into Azuth, so long as they abide by the realm's laws and rules. There are numerous caves that branch off from Mage's Rest that likely serve as places for wizards to practice and hone their spells. 
Many of the cave walls show signs of damage, but slowly the magic of the realm will mend these stone walls. I do want to note that this information comes from source books from 2nd edition's Planescape setting. As such, sorcerers weren't a core class of D&D at the time. They could have been introduced in 2nd edition or earlier for all I know, but all that to say, in 3rd edition source books, there is the inclusion of sorcerers under Azu's portfolio to go alongside wizards. So if a party was to travel to Azu's realm in one of my games, I would extend all the benefits of this realm to sorcerers. In the World Tree's cosmological model used for 3rd edition Forgotten Realms, Azuth resides on the plane of Dwelmarhart. This plane inherently enhances magic to the point that spells are enlarged, extended, and empowered. This does not incur any loss of additional spells for the spellcaster. Since Mistra rules over this realm, she can cancel out any of these spells at any time cast on her plane. Petitioners who come to reside on this plane look much as they did in life. Most of these partitioners are sorcerers and wizards. The Player's Guide to Faerun says they only retain a fraction of their former power, however. Dwelmerhart is the name also given to a magnificent city built atop a high plateau where Mistra's specific realm is. Much like Savras's realm, Azuth's realm, which again is just called Azuth itself, is found in caverns along the side of the plateau. There isn't much said about the realm of Azuth, other than it is a specific destination for wizards compared to the city of Dwemahart being a destination for all spellcasters. That in it is vaguely said to be a place of ritual and mystery. Allies and Allegiances Azu's superior is Mistra. The amicable relationship between the current iteration of Mistra and Azuth could be described to be that of teacher and apprentice. The previous Mistra and Azuth were far closer. Both deities shared a romantic bond as lovers. Azuth is served by Savras and Velsharun. Savras at first did so begrudgingly after Azuth released him from the center of Savras, though more recently these two former rivals have been striving to have a more friendly relationship. Velsharun, if he is back following the second sundering, may not even serve Azuth and Mistra presently. Before the spell plague, Velshroon was paying lip service to have sanctuary from Talos. Eventually, Velshroon created a secret alliance with Talos and played Talos and Azuth off against one another for a time. Azuth is also allied with Ogma, Denir, and Lyra in the Faerunian pantheon. Outside of the Faerunian pantheon, Azuth holds an alliance with Corallon, head of the Elven pantheon, Isis of the Egyptian and Mohorandi pantheon, Bervar Cloakshadow of the Gnomish Pantheon, and Sir Olali of the Halfling Pantheon. Corlon holds the portfolio of elven magic among other things, and thus holds an alliance with Azuth and Mistra. Azuth and Isis have realms close by one another in the Great Wheel model on Arcadia. Given their shared love of magic, they easily have formed an alliance with one another. Other than just stating that Azuth is an ally of the other two, I can only speculate as to why an alliance exists between them. Given Barovar's ties to illusion and deceptive magics, his alliance with Azuth is likely based upon a shared love of said magics. Sir Olali is so well liked by many different deities given her disposition and portfolio over friendship and fellowship. It is unsurprising to see Azuth as one of her many allies. Enemies. 
Surprisingly, the only overt mention of any Azuth enemies mentions Sirik. Sirik as a foe to Azuth should go without saying, given the past Sirik has held with Azuth's superior Mistra. But I have to think that this could have just been an oversight, just leaving him with one enemy. After all, you would think that most of the enemies of Mistra and Saras would be Azuth's as well. Shar, especially with her actions and a failed attempt to usurp the Weave, and aiding Sirik in murdering the second Mistra. Bane and his co- coveting and plotting to take the for- portfolio of magic for himself, and Talos since he has always wanted Mistra's portfolio over wild magic. Symbols In the Faerunian pantheon, Azu's faith has two similar holy symbols that differ regionally. From Chacenta and southward, the Azuthan symbol used is a human left hand, palm forward, pointing upward and outlined in blue fire. In regions north of Chisenta, only the pointing forefinger on the left hand is surrounded in blue flame. Central Dogma From Faiths and Pantheons, a 3rd edition supplement. Quote, Reason is the best way to approach magic, and magic can be examined and reduced to its component parts through study and meditation. Maintain calm and use caution in your spellcasting and magic use to avoid making mistakes that even magic cannot undo. Use the art wisely, and always be mindful of when it is best not to use magic. Teach the wielding of magic and dispense learning throughout Faerun that the use and knowledge of magic may spread. Live and teach the idea that with magical power comes grave responsibility. Learn every new spell you discover and make a copy for the temple library. Do not hoard your knowledge and encourage creativity in magic in all ways and at all times. End quote. Presence of the Faith Unsurprising, given his portfolios, Azuthan worshippers often are philosophers, sages, sorcerers, and wizards. Sorcerers can find it difficult following the tenets of the Azuthan faith. The tenets are clearly tailored to the life of studious wizardry. Also, Azuth himself does have a bit of a bias toward wizards. Still, sorcerers can benefit from being just as studious and understanding their innate arcane gifts. Oftentimes, Azuthan clerics are lawful evil, lawful neutral, or lawful good. Azuth's name may be invoked by wizards as they carry out their arcane practices, whether it be writing out spell scrolls, forming magical circles, memorizing spells, and or casting spells. Some don't verbally speak his name, rather they form their left hand in such a way to imitate the holy symbol of Azuth, pointing with their index finger up towards the sky. Wizards may come to do this gesture unconsciously after performing it so many times. Long ago when he was immortal, Azuth was a master of the mage duel. As such, those who are about to engage in their own mage duels will invoke his name in the hopes Azuth can assist them. Before Azuth freed Savaras, finally from the scepter of Savaras, the Azuthan faith did much to ruin the reputation of Savaras. After Savaras's release, however, the Azuthans changed their tone in regards to Savaras, no doubt being instructed by Azuth directly to do so. Several Azuthans are also members of the Harpers. Those outside of the Azuthan faith see it as a stuffy, static institution. 
To them, Azuthans look to be more caught up in the semantics and minutiae of the arcane, while remaining blind to the plights and changing traditions of Faerun around them. Specifically, Mistrans may come to butt heads with Azuthans. Mistress Faith proactively fights those who they deem to be evil rather often, while the Azuthans try to remain neutral in most affairs. Be that as it may, Azuthans and Mistrans are allied and work together, given their patron's deity's alliance. It is fairly common to see an Azuthan at a Mistran place of worship advising, and vice versa. Hierarchy and Structure of the Clergy Depending on what source book you go by, the Azuthan clergy collectively are called the Enlightened, or more commonly, the Magistrati. Again, depending on which source book you go by, the makeup of the Azuthan faith is going to be said to be either made up of equal parts wizards and clerics, with definite multiclassing taking place between the two of them, or it is primarily made up of Azuthan clerics with few wizards and monks holding positions among the hierarchy. Second edition's Faith in Avatars demonstrates the former structure with some actual figures. 45% of the Faith hierarchy are wizards, 30% are clerics, 20% are specialty priests, which is a second edition specific character option, and 5% are monks. The leader in a given place of worship is given the title of first. Those who fall under their supervision and guidance refer to the first as the revered one. In locations where there is a sizable Azuthan community, the title of first may be expanded to differentiate those who are most proficient and powerful in a given school of arcane magic. So there would be the rank of first transmuter, first diviner, first illusionist, and the like. Azuthans who have served their patron god for a long time may take the honorific master, though most Azuthans don't like to adopt such a presumptuous title. The title of Shield of the High One may be granted to any Azuthan who is shown to be capable in writing any great magical imbalance or threat to the faith and magic alike. This title also comes with a protective magical item and knowledge of a secret phrase that will allow them to receive aid and shelter from any Azuthan place of worship. Recalling the deeply complex constructs personally made by Azuth, the Favored, Two of these favored had formed two factions within the Zuthan faith. Though this information is taken from a third edition source before the spell plague, so potentially these factions have fallen apart, been reduced significantly, or perhaps they remain just as prevalent as they were in the third edition era of the realms. One favored Azus, known as Mildrothar, led a faction known as the Loom Wardens. Loom Wardens held a deep distrust of sorcerers and did not understand why Mistra favored sorcerers and wizards equally. Loom Wardens often act covertly, keeping sorcerers from advancing in society. The other faction, called the Spell Savants, were led by a favored known as Sazok. Spell Savants encouraged a partnership between all arcane practitioners despite where they derived their power from. At the time, these two factions had created division within the Azuthan faith, but not to the extent that there was any formal split in, the, in its organization. But cracks were definitely forming, as some places of worship were experiencing tension from within. Responsibilities and Duties of the Faithful Azuthan spellcasters use and obtain magic in order to be constructive. The faith isn't fully against magic that deceives or destroys, however, just that such magic should be used minimally. 
One of the main goals of this faith is to obtain a written copy of every spell in Faerun. This does mean that some members will go out of their way to spy and or steal from other mages to progress this goal forward. The last thing the Azuthan faith wants is for any spell to go forgotten should any given arcane spellcaster perish without committing one of their unique spells to some medium. This does rub a lot of mages the wrong way, especially given that a lot of mages like to keep their work secret and to themselves. Azuthans have been known in the past to put together folios of submitted spells from mages around Faerun, print said folios, and distribute them out to the larger spellcasting community. This wouldn't be wholly unlike some real-world supplement you might purchase that contains a whole new range of spells as character options. Azuthan followers are large proponents and financial backers of Magefarers. As the name suggests, a Magefarer is a gathering of arcane practitioners to share their talents with one another, but it is also a time for mages to iron out any feuds or arguments they may hold with one another. Often spells, scrolls, and applicable magic items will be given out as prizes and competitions, or as gifts. Azuthans are expected at one point in their life to fund, either solely or collectively, a mage fair themselves. They are also expected to attend these mage fairs on the regular. The Azuthan faith is generous in its gifts to those beginners and novices they see potentially taking up the mantle as arcane practitioners. Spellbooks will be given out freely along with minor magic items to assist such novices. Azuthans will often serve as messengers and intermediaries between wizards. Due to their faith's alignment, Azuthans are well known to be impartial and given their support and advice. Azuthans who are purely divine spellcasters are to ask Azuth continually for access to the ability to cast arcane magic, while Azuthans who are purely arcane casters are to ask Azuth continually for divine guidance and access to divine magic. For both groups, they may never be granted such a boon from their patron deity but they are to continually ask and work towards this goal. The Mage Bond is an informal tenet taught to wizards. The Mage Bond stipulates that disagreements that spill out to physical conflict between mages need to be carried out in a controlled and private environment, some place where their magical energies do not spill out and affect wider society as a whole. The duels carried out under the Mage Bond also are to be non-lethal. Azuthan clergy are the ones who oversee these duels and ensure that the tenets of the Mage Bond are upheld. There are as many wizards who uphold the Mage Bond as there are wizards who scoff and ignore the Mage Bond. The rules and practices of the Mage Bond duels are to be kept private both between the wizards and the Azuthan faith. There is one heretical practice known in the Azuthan faith. Back in the 1340s Dale Reckoning, an Azuthan by the name of Ilmerk Yontar advocated that Azuthans should make profit for themselves as they charge commoners and and political leaders alike for arcane services. If such funds were not forthcoming, Azuthans were then to use coercion. This practice was done so that people learned to respect Azuth. This heresy is known as Yontarism. Yontar himself went missing in 1347 Dale Reckoning without ever being found again. Elminster has stated that for every ten Azuthans, at least three of them were secret Yontaras, though I speculate the prevalence of these heretical beliefs may not be as prevalent as they once were in present-day Faerun. Orders in Priestly Bodies Magister is a mortal spell-wielding champion of magic who serves Mistra and is guided by Azuth. 
I'm not going to lie, I'm pretty, I pretty much copy and pasted my description of the Magister from the Mr. episode here into the Azuth episode. So stick around if you'd like, or feel free to skip ahead if you've already heard this. Azuth himself became the first Magister sometime before 136 Day of Reckoning, when the first record of the second Magister is given. Numerous beings have held the title of Magister, and not just humanoids either. In the past, typically the title of Magister was rewarded to a successful contestant who defeated the current Magister in a spellcasting duel. This duel did not necessarily need to be to the death. Plus, a successful win in such a duel had to be upheld by Azuth. Azuth was easily able to deny any winning challenger the title of Magister should he feel that the duel was not conducted fairly. Aside from the duel, there were, and still are, methods in place to choose a new magister should the previous one die or abdicate. Azuth will often narrow down candidates for the title as he issues challenges and quandaries to these candidates unknowingly. There is only ever one individual who holds this title. Now, there is some conflicting information about whether or not the magister is also chosen of Mistra. Though the second edition supplement, Secrets of the Magister, gives the history, descriptions of the office and title, and the powers of the Magister in great detail. It is the supplement that I hold to be the most authentic when it comes to the properties of the Magister title. That supplement specifically calls out that the Magister cannot be a chosen of Mistra. Should Mistra desire to make a current Magister a chosen of hers, that Magister must then give up the title. In the Magic of Faerun, a 3rd edition supplement, it is said that the second Mistra asked Azuth to change up the selection process of choosing, of choosing the Magister. Now, the chosen of Azuth are to nominate those who they think deserving of the title to Azuth. Azuth himself then decides who should be the Magister. I assume the second Mistra asked for these changes given her difference in alignment compared to that of the first Mistra. I also speculate the current Mistra probably disallows any evil individual to hold the title. It is stated that Azuth may still award someone as Magister if they beat the current Magister in a legitimate mage duel. Magister is not a defender of the Weave or Mistra. Rather, they are to promote the arcane arts. They accomplish this by succeeding in any tasks they are given by Mistra or Azuth, and by furthering their aptitude and skills with the arcane. As the true supervisor of the office of Magister, Azuth will advise the current Magister just like a wise old figure. He will often appear or manifest before a Magister, possibly more than some Magisters may like. If you are genuinely interested in further knowledge about the Magister, I strongly suggest taking a look at the second edition source book, The Secrets of the Magister. The Magister is to be assisted by both the Azuthan and Mistran faiths so long as the Magister provides the necessary proof identifying themselves as such. Members of Savras's faith disagree with the freedom the Magister is allowed to act with, but reluctantly will provide needed services if required. The Magister is gifted with some strong powers, and I will just touch on a few of them here. After they get the title, they are temporarily immune to all magic for a period of four to seven months. They are well aware of any given magical effect occurring nearby them. They can never fall to their death as Featherfall is unconsciously cast to protect them, and they can levitate at will. They can cast Dimension Door and Water Walk up to six times a day. They have True Sight. They have an innate resistance to magic spells. And past that, there are eight other innate abilities. 
The last recorded master I was able to find any record of was Talatha Veerovri. She died in 1385 Dale Reckoning. Golem masters are an elite branch of the Azuthan faith who unsurprisingly specialize in, rigorously study, and create golems. They are responsible in destroying any rogue golems. The creation of a golem in a golem master's mind is an active form of worship and dedication to Azuth. They strive for perfection when creating their golems for this reason. High-level golem masters are capable of creating a golem in half its normal time. That even gets reduced down to a quarter of the time if they have the specific manual for the type of golem they intend on creating. The golem master has a unique gift when it comes to fighting golems as well. Any mundane weapon they wield in their hands can affect any golem despite a golem's inherent magical defenses. What is more, a golem master has a sizable bonus to their attacks and damage with weapons wielded against golems. Mage friends are a specific branch of the Azuthan faith who both hold some cleric and wizard powers. Though rather than gaining their arcane spells through study, they get them through meditation and prayer, much like a cleric. This orderly sect can often get bogged down in the minutiae of discourse sometimes, but their ultimate goal is to go out and counsel wizards in the ethics and responsibility of wielding arcane magic. Apart from counseling wizards, mage friends also assist magical sites in mystery places of worship. Though they have access to wizard spells, they cannot use magical items that wizards can, though they can cast spells from scrolls that wizards can. Mechanically, they must only be lawful neutral in alignment. Some of their access to cleric spells is limited as well, plus they cannot turn on dead. The Guardians of the Weave is a loose organization of spellcasters who combat evil spellcasters, the evil deities of magic, and those who look to damage the Weave. Specifically in the 3rd edition era of the Forgotten Realms, they were at odds with Shar and her followers as they fought incursions of the Shadow Weave throughout the continent. The group is bound by a love for magic and they do not want to see the Weave harmed to any extent. The symbol of the Guardians is a golden web held within a circle to represent the Weave. A member may display this as a brooch or amulet or keep it hidden but each member's symbol serves as a way of tracking one another. The Guardians have deep ties with the Azuthan faith, and many of its members are Azuthans. The Swords of the High One are an order of multi-class Paladin wizards. They first start out as gaining levels in Paladin before multi-classing and going forward with levels in Wizard only. I did not come across any more information about them than that. The Shining Hand is an old Azuthan monk order based out of Om. They combine the practice of wizardry with martial arts. Due to the persecution of the arcane arts in Om, much of the Shining Hand organization operates hidden and underground. The Order of the Forgotten Pages is an honorary fellowship and Azuthan can be decorated with and welcomed into. Members of this order are rewarded with admittance if they have shown to be capable in retrieving lost magical items, spells, and knowledge. The first in the Azuthan clergy will vote to see who is allowed into the order. Members may wear a silver trim along the collars of their ceremonial outfits unique to their order. 
The Knights of the Weave are a mixed order of warriors who come from the Guardians of the Weave, Azu's Faith and Mistra's Faith, who are devout protectors of the Weave. They receive their magic directly from the Weave, thus their magic is arcane in nature compared to divine magic typically wielded by paladins. Many come from either the Guardians of the Weave, the Mistran Faith, or the Azuthan Faith. Fighters and paladins often become members of this group, but some sorcerers and bards may join as well. The knights may study arcane knowledge, though theirs is, a un- though theirs is an innate form of arcane spellcasting that comes from within, rather than honing it like, say, a wizard does. Their order is a small group with not many members. While they are not an order of paladins per se, they are often treated as such, though there is an existing friendly rivalry between them and actual Mistrin and Azuthan paladins. Azuth's faith trains and harbors mage killers, though they do not operate within a specific named order. It may seem odd that the Azuthan faith has mage killers, but the Azuthan faith espouses the responsible use of the arcane arts. So if they come to know of an irresponsible mage who is a grave threat, they will send out the mage killers to go and deal with this threat. Appearance and Dress Depending on what source book you go by, Azuthans might dress quite a bit like the stereotypical wizard. They wear dull collared robes that have unusually high collars. They have large hats upon their heads. Though around their necks they wear stoles that are embroidered with arcane sigils and glyphs or Azuthans wear a shimmering silken grey robe. This may be supplemented by heavier material and elements to account for colder climates. The Azuthan symbol is placed on the chest. Around the symbol there are auras that denote rank in the faith. Those at the lesser ranks have a yellow aura, intermediate ranks have a red aura, and finally those designated as first in the organization have a white aura. In the field, Azuthans wear their symbol over the chest. Either it will be sewn into a piece of clothing or inlaid in their metal armor. More often than not, you will see them with accoutrement and clothing gray in color. Golem masters usually are found in their work clothes which double as their ceremonial dress. Their aprons and common clothes are often covered in dust, clay, filings, and whatever material the golem master has used recently in their work on a particular golem. When adventuring, a golem master wears leather or studded leather armor while wielding staves or hammers. Mage friends do not wear armor and are limited to the weapons that wizards can use. Rituals Azuthan clerics pray and select their next spells for the coming day at dusk. The ascension of a new magister or acknowledgement of a new favored is deemed as an unscheduled holy day in the Azuthan faith. Other than that, the faith has none of its own scheduled holy days. Not much is said about how the Azuthans celebrate such events, other than to say that there is a holy revel. Each twilight, Azuthans offer up a prayer to Azuth for guidance in the coming day. In Azuthan places of worship, each of the three main meals is accompanied by a reading on the ethical use of magic, the advancement of magic, or philosophical elements of magic. In order to become a full clergy member in the Azuthan faith, each novice must partake in a ritual known as the Transforming. A high-ranking Azuthan will cast a shape-changing spell upon the novice. This spell will cause the novice to go through a cycle of shape-changing throughout a 10-day period. This ritual is held in a controlled environment, 
usually in some secluded temple garden. All of the creatures the novice will become will be able to survive in the provided secluded environment. The purpose of the transforming is to place the novice in the position of several different creatures and reflect upon their perspective. The spell unique to the transforming ritual is an Azuthan secret, though it has been used in the past to defend Azuthan places of worship. A wild night is an occasional celebration deemed by the Azuthans, likely on a case-by-case basis for each place of worship if I had to guess. During a wild night, Azuthans are allowed to indulge themselves in wild, uncontrolled magics just to feel it course through them freely. Hand-picked Azuthans will remain on the sidelines in case someone needs to be aided due to accidental harm and the like. General Locations of Places of Worship Each Azuthan temple is said to hold the details of hundreds of spells in their respective libraries and collections. These temples also hold other texts written by mages, wizards mostly, and they revered them as part of their religious canon as much for their application with the arcane. The prevalence of Azuth in places of worship does show a bit of discrepancy across editions and source books. Though that may be because in earlier editions Azuth had a long time to build up a presence in Faerun, whereas in 5th edition more than a century had passed where he had been seemingly destroyed or gone missing. Thus, some of these former places of worship were abandoned and or destroyed during the Spell Plague era. As it is, Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide says Azuth and temples are a rare thing. Most places of worship are instead personal shrines or shrines housed in Mistran places of worship. Whereas in older sources like 3rd edition space and pantheons, it is common to come across an Azuthan place of worship in a larger urban settlement. This is especially true if there are arcane guilds and academies present in such settlements. In personal shrines, Azuth may be represented as his garbed older self with left hand held up much like a symbol though he is hooded. Other shrines may just represent Azuth with a carved hand designed to look like his symbol. In each of these types of shrines, the pointed left index finger may be a candle holder or enchanted permanently by a light spell. Specific Places of Worship The Temple of the Spell Lord's House in Calumport is known for a beautiful type of window known as a rose window. You will often see real-world rose windows made of stained glass. This rose window is 50 feet across, and rather than be made of glass, it shimmers and changes in color due to a permanent illusion spell cast upon the 50-foot area. The temple holds one of the bigger libraries in the city. There is a second unnamed temple to Azuth in Calumport. At sunset, sunlight hits the dome of this temple's minaret. The dome is enchanted in such a way to turn the sunlight into magical energy that cause carved Azuthan symbols to glow throughout the temple. The local market square near this temple features clergy not just from this particular temple, but the local temples of Helm and Talos also. The three respective groups preach out to any passerbys and merchants who frequent the square. The House of the High One and Serloon help the local merchants by providing various abjuration spells alongside the local Mistran Temple. Perhaps somewhere in the ruins of Mithdranor is the former Tower of the Hand. In the past, this temple incorporated the former abode and laboratory of a powerful wizard named Demron. Demron's remains were buried beneath an altar 
made to look like the symbol of Azuv. The majocracy of Helrua in general are strong adherents of both arcane magic and the worship of Mistra and Azuth. Azuthan clergy are placed in a lower social standing compared to their Mistran peers in this nation. The Azuthan faith saw an influx in membership after several Mistran's faith was shaken by the events during the Time of Troubles. Roughly one in six Helruans are worshippers of Azuth. There is one major Azuthan temple stronghold called the House of the High One Ascendant, in the nation, near Lahair in western Halrua. Once based out of the natural caverns in the mountains, the complex spread outwards. Its front entrance is a grand stone archway and portico with some of the grandest carvings known throughout all of Halrua. Before the spell plague at least, the Azuthan faith in Halrua was responsible for monitoring the actions of adherents to Savras and Velsharun. Whether that sort of arrangement still exists in present-day Halrua has yet to be stated to my knowledge. The High One's Hand in the town of Dalnerum features a six-foot-tall crystalline left hand carved to look like Azu's symbol. Azuthan mages, visiting the altar, release their magic missiles into the hand. Annually, the local Azuthan clergy will release the collected energy of these spells out into the sky in a ceremony in Azu's name. A first edition supplement talked about Thay and how there was said to be Azuthan temples in Eltabar and Byzantur, and Azuthan shrines in Tiratoros and Pyrodoros. But in the second edition spellbound box set, which covers Thay, Azu's worship is said to be banished from Byzantur, and I extrapolate that out to also include other Thayan settlements as well. If you recall from the Mistra episode, her worshippers had gone underground, so maybe that Azus did it as well. The Tower of Mysteries in Molemaster is a temple-colored sky blue. Within it are numerous small libraries and workshops. Magic seems to radiate off the outside surface of the tower. West of the village of Trial is a rocky hill known as the Tor where the god talks. Here an Azuthan can come and attempt to talk with an unseen Azuth. Azuth doesn't always talk with whomever calls upon him, however. The local brigands and bugbears are all too aware that pilgrims make their way here from time to time, and will take a full advantage of that fact. The specific location of the tour is not marked on any map or told by any Azuthan who knows of it themselves. It is for each Azuthan to find out which rocky hills the tour where the god talks in their own way. Unnamed temples to Azuth can be found in Tazir and Simbar. An unnamed shrine to Azuth can be found in Darloon. Character Options For 2nd edition, a breakdown for the Azuthan-specific specialty priest, the Magistrati, can be found in Face and Avatars. Guidelines to make a Magister NPC and PC can be found in Secrets of the Magister. An option for Azuthan Crusaders and the breakdown for the Azuthan Priest variants, the Golem Master and Mage Friend, can be found in Warriors and Priests of the Realms. For 3rd edition, the Sword of the Arcane Order is a feat specific to three Holy Orders, one being Azus Swords of the High One, the other two being Mystery Orders. It can be found in Champions of Valor. The Mage Killer Prestige class and template for the Magister can be found in Magic of Faerun. The Arcane Devotee Prestige class can be found in Player's Guide to Faerun. For those looking to make a custom background for a 5th edition character who is also an Azuthan, I would suggest the following. 
For your two skill proficiencies, Arcana and Investigation. For your language or tool proficiencies, Calligrapher Supplies and one language of your choice. For your equipment, there's the Acolytes and Sages, both from the Player's Handbook, and the Cloistered Scholars from Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide. For the ribbon feature attached to your background, there's the Acolyte Shelter of the Faithful and the Sages Research from the Player's Handbook, and then the Cloistered Scholars Library Access, again from Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide. Here is just a list of subclasses that I think would be thematically appropriate for a NPC or PC to take if they are a worshiper of Azuth in 5th edition. For the Cleric, there's the Knowledge Domain from the Player's Handbook and the Arcana Domain from Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide. For the Fighter, they use the Eldritch Knight from the Player's Handbook and Arcane Archer from Xanathar's Guide to Everything. For the Monk, there are Azuth and Monks, but the closest subclass that uses any sort of arcane magic is the Way of the Four Elements from the Player's Handbook. But I think to include that as something that's thematically appropriate to Azuth is really stretching it. Unless you choose to reflavor and rework the class. For the Paladin, there's the Oath of the Watchers from Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. For the Rogue, there's the Arcane Trickster from the Player's Handbook. For the Sorcerer, realistically, all the Sorcerer subclasses could work, though I would emphasize the point that there is a heavy bias in the Azuthan faith towards Wizards, but Sorcerers, for the most part, are also welcomed. For Wizards, there's the Schools of Abjuration, Conjuration, Divination, Enchantment, Evocation, Illusion, Necromancy, and Transmutation, all found in the Player's Handbook. There's the War Wizard from Xanathar's Guide to Everything, and the Scribe's Wizard from Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Dungeon Master Options First, I'd just like to touch on some 5th edition official monsters that are available to you that would likely be found in service to the Azuthan Faith, or Azuth himself. From the Monster Manual, there's the Animated Armor, Clay Golem, Flesh Golem, Iron Golem, Stone Golem, Deva, Flying Sword, Owl, Giant Owl, Cat, Mastiff, Helmed Horror, and the Rug of Smothering. From Waterdeep Dragon Heist, there's the Flying Staff and Swarm of Books. From Waterdeep Dungeon of the Mad Mage, there's the Animated Ballista, Animated Jade Serpent, Animated Stove, Crystal Battle Axe, Crystal Golem, and the Flying Trident. From Icewind Dale, Rhyme of the Frost Maiden, there is the Living Bigby's Hand, Living Blade of Disaster, Living Demiplane, and Snow Golem. From Tales from the Yawning Portal, there's the Animated Table, Flying Shield, Gargantuan the Rug of Smothering, and Stone Dragon Statue. From Tomb of Annihilation, there's a Stone Juggernaut and Terracotta Warrior. From Eberron Rising from the Last War, Living Burning Hands, Living Cloud Kill, and Living Lightning Bolt. From Storm King's Thunder, there's the Huge Stone Golem. From Candlekeep Mysteries, the Animated Broom, Animated Chain Library, and Swarm of Animated Books. From Curse of Strahd, Amber Golem, Animated Halberd, Broom of Animated Attack, and Guardian Portrait. From Explorer's Guide to Wildmount, the Animated Knife, and Damaged Flesh Golem. Now I'd just like to touch briefly on a non-5th edition monster that is found in the service of the Azuthan Faith. 
watch ghosts, which are sometimes called unsleeping guardians, are incorporeal, intelligent undead creatures. Their limbs look to be covered in pale white flesh, but their torsos and lower bodies instead have a skeletal appearance. Their eyes are always black, empty pits. Due to the method of their creation, they are immune to turn undead. They can lash out with a cold beam attack and a chilling melee touch attack. Another unique ability of the Watch Ghost is to make a bright aura appear around their opponent's magic items. The intention behind this ability is to attract any surrounding monsters and creatures toward the opponent. Watch Ghosts are created to serve as the guardians to watch over tombs, keeps, and the like. They are usually created by evil clerics, evil wizards, or undead lords and ladies through an 8th level spell called Create Watch Ghost. A successful casting of the spell over a course will manifest the Watch Ghost with the intelligence of the being who was once alive. The Watch Ghost, while intelligent, is bound to fulfill the commands of the caster who created them. The statistics and breakdown for Watch Ghost can be found in the 2nd edition box set, The Ruins of Undermountain. To round out the section on monsters and stat blocks, the following are just a list of humanoid NPC stat blocks to represent various Azuthan worshippers and clergy. Always keep in mind with spellcasters, you can always swap out their listed spells for other spells that are more fitting to the themes you're trying to get at. From the monster manual, there's the Acolyte, Priest, Archmage, and Mage. From Volo's Guide to Monsters, there's the Apprentice Wizard, Abjurer, Conjurer, Enchanter, Evoker, Illusionist, Necromancer, and Transmuter. From the Starter Set, or Lost Minds of Phandelver, there's the Evil Mage. From Candlekeep Mysteries, there's the Wood Elf Wizard. And finally, from Ghost of Saltmarsh, there's the Pirate Deck Wizard. Let's talk about some Azuthan-specific magic items. The Azuthan Faith holds sacred to them books known as Touch Tomes. Most of these sacred texts are spellbooks. They are called touch tomes since these books were once physically touched and collected by Azuth long ago when he still walked the surface of Faerun as a mortal. Clerics and priests who study these tomes are able to access and learn spells much like any wizard would. Now since this information is taken from a second edition book, the description uses that edition's mechanics. I'm just going to quote the book directly here. Quote, such spells required no material components, but one prayer slot, a spell the priest generally carries, must be sacrificed for every wizard spell memorized. Two such slots of the seventh level must be sacrificed for every eighth level wizard spell taken. And ninth level wizard spells are beyond the reach of priests of Azuth. End quote. Those wizards who read from the touch tomes receive a vision from Azuth himself asking if the individual would like to become part of the Azuthan faith. Should a wizard refuse an invitation, Azuth does not harm them in any way. Those wizards who accept can swap out their memorized wizard spells for pre-spells. These specific wizards become known as the Enlightened or Enlightened Ones. Still, even they have some restrictions and cannot access pre-spells that are of 7th level or higher. Forthrin's Akavir is a specific holy tome from 2nd edition's Prayers from the Faithful. Unlike most holy tomes in Azu's faith, this tome is actually that of a book of priest spells, not a spell book. Within it was held the author, Forthrin's initiative in attempting to cement an orthodox list of prayers for all Azuthan clerics and priests who were found at a now-ruined abbey 
on the island of Norlorn out in the Sea of Fallen Stars. The Arkavir is a large tome, two feet across and four feet in height. Its ebony covers are bound in a pebbled cloth and do not bear any sort of decorative element. The tome contains 21 pages, each page for a corresponding priest spell. While closed, the tome gives off motes of purple-white light that look like stars. There is no heat to them as they flit about lazily from every inch of the book, fading away relatively quickly. The mystery of these motes has yet to be discovered. That is if there is anything more to them than meets the eye. Tales are told that touching a magical item to the Archivir will cause it to fully recharge overnight. The Archivir does recharge magic items, but it does so at random and only for 1d10 charges at a time. No one has quite been able to discern when the Archivir will in fact recharge an item. This tome cannot be set aflame, fall apart in water, or be affected by any known magic. The book also holds powerful healing properties that will allow anyone who touches it to heal themselves fully, along with ridding any curses and diseases. This is so long as they speak the words, Heal me, Azuth. This can only be done annually, per person. Though it is definitely warded magically with its own enchantments, the Archivir does not produce any aura for those with a Detect Magic spell active. The abbey that held the Archivir was attacked and looted by pirates in 1172 Dale Reckoning. Rising up after this event were the ghosts of several of the clergy who would protect the ruins from anyone who came near them. An initiative was carried out by a gathering of pirates to take the stones that remained of the abbey and sink them down where the ghosts would be taken in turn. In 1344 Dale Reckoning, the Archivir would be discovered in a hidden underground room in the abbey by a pirate. Three skeletons in the underground room rose up as the pirate went to make off with the Archivir. He ran back to his ship as more undead skeletons began digging their way out of the ground to come after the man. He and his crew destroyed them all throughout a night of combat. Though his comrades felt it right to kill the man for the trouble he had caused, and they made off the Archivir themselves. From them, the book made its way into the hands of a Sharn priestess. She dared to try and cast a spell from the Archivir, which caused an avatar of Azuth to manifest. Azuth destroyed the priestess as he commanded a nearby local to take the Archivir to one of his places of worship. There the book stayed until it disappeared. Tales say either a power-hungry wizard took it, a thief took it, or a priest who suddenly took on the appearance of Azuth walked out with it. From 1359 Dale Reckoning onwards, it would make its way into the hands of several adventurers and wizards. Its current whereabouts are unknown. I'm going to talk about the Staff of Savras in detail, so those who heard such details in the Savras episode, please feel free to skip ahead. I don't mention anything new here about it. Savras is no longer imprisoned within the scepter, but the scepter still functions just the same. The scepter is a four-foot-long staff carved from smoky gray duskwood. Along its length are nine embedded star sapphires. The bottom is capped with a one-inch diamond engraved with Savras's symbol. The top is capped with a three-inch diamond engraved with Azuth's symbol. After Azuth released Savras from the scepter, the scepter vanished before the eyes of the gods. It is one of a few artifacts that realm deities are blind to and have to rely on traditional means to discern where such items may be found. Some rumors of the scepter have been heard since Savras's release, 
so it very likely rests somewhere down on Faerun. The following abilities are taken from 2nd edition sources, so keep that in mind when certain features and modifiers are stated. It functions as a plus 5 quarterstaff in battle. After a creature is stuck by the scepter, the wielder may attempt to imprison a creature within the scepter. Should the hit creature fail a saving throw, they are imprisoned. On the off chance the wielder strikes the avatar of a given deity, and the avatar fails the saving throw, the entire essence of that deity in realm space gets drawn into the scepter and imprisoned as well. The wielder can release those imprisoned in the scepter by striking the base of the scepter on the ground, and then stating the creature or entity's complete and true name three times in succession. There is an inherent 1% chance per day that the scepter may teleport to a random place on Faerun. Any non-divine being imprisoned is unable to communicate to the wielder of the scepter, though they are well aware of their own imprisonment, and do not age. For every day that passes, the chances the imprisoned creature goes mad is increased 3% cumulatively. The scepter has powers imbued upon it depending on which deity last was imprisoned within. Currently, the last and only deity imprisoned within the scepter was Savras. Should another divine being be trapped inside, the imbued powers would slowly change to reflect that imprisoned being. These powers can be activated by speaking the divine being's name and stating which powers is desired. Since Savras was the last one within the scepter, the following powers are intrinsic to it. Access to any spell from the Divination Sphere of Magic, 9th level or lower. Access to any spell that obscures divination spells such as Misdirection. The diamond on top of the scepter functions as a crystal ball. A spellcaster, 9th level or higher, can peer into the diamond and scry upon any location on Faerun, or any location tied to a realm-specific entity in the inner and outer planes, so long as it isn't warded against such things by a divine power. A creature's thoughts can also be read if they are centered in the viewpoint of the diamond as well. The scepter bears a curse if a deity is trapped within it. For every day that passes, the chance for the wielder to be driven mad goes up cumulatively by 1%. Divine powers trapped within it can make use of any psionic or magic abilities their avatar possesses that do not require a body to manifest. The Divine Power will strive to offer anything to get the wielder to release them from within the scepter. It is not these promises, however, that drive the wielder mad. However, it is the continual proximity to a Divine Power. The only way a creature is not affected by this curse is if the wielder shares the same alignment as the Divine Power, is a devout worshipper of that given Divine Power, or carries some Divine Essence themselves. Since Silune Silverhand is a chosen of Mistra, she was not subject to the curse. The details for the scepter can be found in 2nd edition's Volo's Guide to All Things Magical. The Belt of Stars is one of the magic items Azuth created as a mortal. If the belt is being misused, Azuth has it within his power to destroy it with a thought. The belt looks like a lined-up belt made up of 18 floating star sapphires. The wearer of the belt is able to have detect invisibility and detect magic active at all times. The wearer can fly for a round each day. The belt allows a spellcaster wearing it to cast spells with just a thought, removing the need for material, verbal, and somatic components. The gems grant the wearer a large inventory of additional spell slots per 8 hours. Each gemstone corresponds to a specific spell level, 
and there are two gemstones for every spell level. What is even more mind-boggling to me, especially as someone most familiar with 5th edition rules, is this belt allows for the additional casting of spells during the wearer's turn. And this additional casting is only limited by the amount of gemstones still holding their spell slots. Theoretically, a high-level mage could cast their one normal spell per turn, then unleash a ludicrous 18 bonus spells. There are a couple of caveats to the spell slot used for the belt, but that's a bit too heavy on detail right now. Each gemstone along the belt can be affected by the dispel magic spell, but the belt is impervious to any damage dealing spells, as it easily absorbs any of these spells into one of its gemstones. The details for the Belt of Stars can be found in 2nd edition's Volo's Guide to the Dale Ends. To round out the section of magic items, I just want to touch on some thematically appropriate magic items from official 5th edition sources I feel the Faith of Azuth might have access to. From the Dungeon Master's Guide. Now I could have included a lot more magic items from the Dungeon Master's Guide, but I figured I would acknowledge the ones I feel are most associated with wizards and sorcerers. I know full well there are others, but I do not want to list them all off. Plus one to plus three Wand of the War Mage. Bracers of Defense. Headband of Intellect. Ioun Stones. Mantle of Spell Resistance. The Various Manuals of Golems. Pearl of Power. Ring of Protection. Ring of Spell Turning. Robe of Eyes. Robe of Scintillating Colors. Robe of Stars. Robe of the Arch Magi. The Spell Scrolls for Wizards and or Sorcerers. Staff of Charming. Staff of Fire. Staff of Frost. Staff of Power. Staff of Striking. Staff of the Magi. Tome of Clear Thought. Wand of Binding. Wand of Enemy Detection. Wand of Fear. Wand of Fireballs. Wand of Lightning Bolts. Wand of Magic Missiles. Wand of Polymorph. Wand of Web, and Wand of Wonder. From Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica, there's the Illusionist's Bracers and the Voyager Staff. From Horde of the Dragon Queen, there's the Wand of Winter. From the Lost Minds of Fandelver in the Starter Set, there's the Staff of Defense. From Explorer's Guide to Wildmount, there's the Dispelling Stone, Goggles of Object Reading, the Grimoire Infinitus, Potion of Maximum Power, Spell Bottle, Staff of the Ivory Claw. From Tashra's Cauldron of Everything, plus one to plus three Arcane Grimoire. Alchemical Compendium. Astromancy Archive. Atlas of Endless Horizons. Crystalline Chronicle. Duplicitous Manuscript. Fulminating Treaties. Heartweaver's Primer. Plaincaller's Codex. Librum of Souls and Flesh. And Spellwrought Tattoos. From Eberron Rising from the Last War, there's the various Orbs of Shielding and the Scribe's Pen. From Candlekeep Mysteries, there's Radiance, a named Magic Wand. From Tales from the Yawning Portal, Wand of Entangle. And finally, from Xanthar's Guide to Everything, the Enduring Spellbook, Hat of Wizardry, Staff of Adornment. Alright, thank you for listening to Religion in the Realms. If you're interested in keeping up with the future release of episodes, you can follow the podcast Twitter account at Realms Religion. These episodes are also uploaded to YouTube as well. The podcast YouTube channel can be found under Religion in the Realms. 
Audio versions of the podcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play Podcasts. If you wish to get in touch with me with any questions or just want to chat, my personal Twitter handle is at ShivsEmbrace, or you can send an email to me at realmsofreligion at gmail.com, all in lowercase. Back in episode 8, I covered Estitia, one of the four elemental deities in the Faerodian pantheon. For the next upcoming three episodes, I will be discussing the other three. Kozuth will be up first, the neutral god of fire. Until next time, may Timora look kindly upon your dice rolls, Helm protect you, and Lathander light your path. Music for this episode, Stone Magic by Ian Grimm.